Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. This week's case was a real doozy. Just when I thought I was finished with it, I came upon more revelations. So you're in for a very interesting one. Most true crime fans can think of the story that got them interested in the subject. And the story I'm going to tell today is probably one of the first that I heard that definitely piqued my interest into true crime. I was very young at the time, riding in the car with my mom. We were listening to the radio as we rode along. Back in those days, it was well before iTunes, or CD players, or even tape players. So everyone just listened to the radio. It was your source of popular music. The year was 1977, so the hit song was Casey and the Sunshine Band's I'm Your Boogeyman. And usually at the top of the hour, there would be a quick news update. This day, the news broke that a nun had been raped and murdered in Wheeling, West Virginia. I distinctly remember being in the back seat, looking at my mom and saying, what's rape? At that really young age, I could barely understand the concept of murder. And rape was definitely not something my mom was prepared to explain to me. She told me I was too young to understand, and that really stuck with me. It bothered me. I mean, why couldn't I know? What was so bad about it that I couldn't know until I was older? And then when I was older and remembered the story, 
I was shocked. Who would rape and murder a nun? It's like a personal affront to God. When researching the case, I found that it also possibly connected to several unsolved murders in the West Virginia, Pennsylvania area around that same time. So this week, I'm going to look into those cases and the murder of Sister Roberta Elam. Roberta, or Sister Robin as she was known, was on a religious retreat in the countryside. She'd gone to pray, was attacked, raped, and strangled to death. And to this day, her death remains unsolved decades later. It was a murder that really rocked the area. When any murder is committed, it's shocking in itself. And the fact that this young woman had given her life to God and had it so brutally ripped away makes it even more heinous. Roberta Elam was born in Illinois in 1950. I couldn't find out much about her early childhood. After high school, she attended college in Missouri, and she then moved with her family to Allendale, New Jersey. There, she attended nearby Fordham University in New York City. The college was founded by the Catholic Diocese in 1841, making it the oldest Catholic university in the Northeast, the third oldest university in New York, and the only Jesuit university in New York City. Now, I was raised Southern Baptist, so if you're like me, you might not know anything about being Catholic, much less anything to do with Jesuits. In fact, I was quite ignorant as to anything to do with the Jesuits. So to the best of my knowledge, I'm going to explain that whole scene. So if you're Catholic or you already know about Jesuits, please bear with me for a minute. Jesuits belong to the Society of Jesus, a congregation of the Catholic Church. It was founded in Spain by Ignatius of Loyola and six other men in the 16th century. Those men professed vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience as missionaries. And they vowed to serve anywhere in the world, especially areas of extreme poverty. The Jesuits are sometimes called God's soldiers since Ignatius was of a military background. Ignatius was sent around to create schools, colleges, and seminaries. So that brings us to modern-day Wheeling, West Virginia, where there is a Jesuit college and a convent that plays a very pivotal role in the life of Roberta Elam. At Fordham University, Robin met another student, Sister Kathleen, who encouraged her to come to West Virginia to work with her. By this time in her life, Robin had entered the convent with the Daughters of Charity. This friend was a nun interested in working on adult education, so Robin joined the Catholic Diocese of the Wheeling Charleston Downtown Wheeling Office. There she served as a coordinator of the adult religious program, that was operated by the diocese in West Virginia. There was a retreat offered for those wanting to become nuns at an area called Mount St. Joseph. Mount St. Joseph is also known as Holloway Estate. Located on the property is the mother house for the Sisters of St. Joseph. And the area where all this is located is very breathtaking. It's just a little outside wheeling in the countryside on the very windy road called Pogue's Run. I previously talked about the beauty of my home state of West Virginia a couple of episodes ago when I talked about the new Vrindavan Temple. 
West Virginia is really, truly one of the most beautiful states in the U.S., and this area is a prime example of that beauty. Mount St. Joseph is very close to the resort of Ogilvy Park. The area is mostly residential, surrounded by the park and Spidell Golf Course, which is right by Mount St. Joseph. During the holiday season, Ogilvy is famous for its Festival of Lights display. Travelers come from very far to see it. The park is absolutely gorgeous, with rolling hills and lots of green and trees. And the elevation is high, so you can see the hills for miles. Also, a very perfect place for this home for nuns. I can understand the placement. If you ever were to imagine a place to contemplate and connect with God, this would be it. You're very far from any kind of hustle and bustle. And hunting is forbidden near Ogilby, so you frequently see lots of deer and other wildlife. And because they're not hunted, they get pretty close to humans. You really feel like you connect with nature. It's just the epitome of beauty and serenity. I would take Pogues Run Road during the Festival of Lights because traffic would back up so bad on the main road. Last thing you want to do after a long day at work is sit in traffic. Pogues Run is a much less traveled road, so that's something to keep in mind as we progress through the story. Mount St. Joseph provides a yearly silent retreat for those interested in devoting their life to God and becoming nuns. The estate was transformed into a home for the sisters during the late 50s. So Robin had moved to the Fulton area near Wheeling in 1976 when she worked for the Wheeling Office of the Diocese. And she was very excited to attend this eight-day retreat offered in the countryside. Robin was not officially a nun. She was just a pre-novice candidate. And that's basically the time when you're preparing to take your vows to become a nun. The novice is free to quit at any time, but it's the last step before you are officially a nun. This seemed to be the path that Roberta was taking without waiver, so I think she can be referred to as sister. June 13, 1977 was the first day of the retreat. Robin was staying in a bedroom in the house up on the second floor. She was last seen around 10.30 that morning getting an apple from the kitchen downstairs. From there, she walked to the secluded area near the mother house for the silent meditation. So there's the large mother house and then a stone path up a hill that leads to an open field used for meditation. And in that field is a bench on which the sisters can sit and pray or meditate. Around 1 p.m., the groundskeeper for Mount St. Joseph came upon an awful sight. The bench had been overturned in what appeared to be a struggle. Surrounding the bench were Robin's prayer book and bag. And not far from the bench was the body of Sister Robin. Her white blouse and bra had been pushed up while her pants and underwear were pushed down. It was evident she was the victim of a sexual assault. All this had occurred less than 500 feet from this main building. The theory is that the assailant was hiding in the bushes and attacked her from behind, although there is some debate about that angle. There were visible thumb marks on her neck indicating that it was a frontal assault. But it was clear that she was into the weeds where the assault took place. And unfortunately, no one heard a thing. It's such a remote and quiet place, yet no one heard her scream. 
Bloodhounds were brought in from nearby West Virginia State Penitentiary in Moundsville, and police crews worked around the clock searching the grounds for clues. Everything came up a dead end. Vivian Elliott worked as a nurse's aide at Mount St. Joseph. She worked late the night before, and she recalls the girl who relieved her noticing a strange car outside. And when she came for the change at 10.30 p.m., she asked Vivian, do you have someone waiting for you that has a black van? At that time, she really thought nothing of it, and she replied that she didn't, and her mother was her ride. When her mom got there to pick her up, she didn't notice a black van. It wasn't much to go on and quickly became another dead end. Another suspicious group were the four-men salvage crew from Atlanta, Georgia, who had been working in the Wheeling area for the past few months. And apparently the Friday before her death, Robin had, quote, words with one of the men. He had a filthy mouth, and he said vulgar things about her and the other sisters. However, the police couldn't find anything to connect these men to the crime. And with the case going colder by the day, officials decided to plead to the public for any help they could provide, with the promise of confidentiality. Hundreds of calls poured in, and the police looked into each and every one. On August 15th, Details of a suspicious vehicle on Pogue's Run came in. The car had been parked on the road the day of the attack. It was a Chevy Impala with West Virginia license plates. The color was a light blue with chipped paint, and on the back were decals, although the color didn't get a really good look. They thought one appeared to be a coal miner's one, and the other looked to be of religious nature. There appeared to be religious pamphlets in the back window, too. A man was seen exiting the car and crossing to an embankment that led to the convent. He was described as about 30 to 40 years old, about 5'10 to 6 feet tall with broad build. He had a growth of black beard with long dark hair and was dressed in denim. On August 31, 1977, an official sketch was released. As hopeful as police were that this would bring about a lead, they were sadly disappointed. Granted, this was the late 70s, so long hair and denim described just about every guy in the area at that time. So as you can guess, the case went very cold. It put everyone in the area on edge, especially those at the mother house, which was essentially on lockdown after the murder. Years went by without any kind of change. Then in 2001, the case was reopened. Tom Burgoyne was the former head of the FBI office in Wheeling, and he had recently become sheriff for Ohio County. So he set up a task force with Sergeant Danny Swiger of the West Virginia State Police and Lieutenant Joe Kuchta of the Ohio County Sheriff's Office. So together they would look at this case with fresh eyes, going over all the case files from the start. Swiger was quoted as saying, Every West Virginian should take this personally that this happened in their state. So the men had one thing on their side, which is DNA. There was DNA of the suspect left on the victim. And from that, they could go through the list of initial suspects and weed them out by comparing DNA samples, an advantage they didn't have in the late 70s. They also knew the suspect had type A blood. 
They first went to a strong suspect from early on in the case. This guy had been incarcerated previously for a violent attack, and he looked good for this one. The only reason he wasn't prosecuted was there wasn't enough evidence to bring charges. But good thing, because his DNA didn't match. The team then moved on to a man who at that time was a vagrant and the strong theory that whoever committed the crime was passing through or a vagrant. By this time, this is Missouri. And luckily, tissue samples from a gallbladder surgery were still around, proving that he wasn't a match. Another theory is that it might have been a priest, which isn't a far stretch. One priest who was looked into was charged with child molestation. And tissue samples from a foot amputation proved that, although he was a creep, he wasn't guilty of crime. Another promising suspect was an inmate who bragged about committing the crime in the 80s. He had since passed away in Tennessee, leaving the choice to exhume him up to his relatives. They provided the go-ahead, which cleared him of any further suspicion. Now, although these suspects have all been eliminated, it doesn't mean that these guys are willing to stop searching for her killer. And they think with the advantage of technology, they'll solve this case. And I think and hope they're right. The theory is that this person probably was familiar with the area. And I agree, because Pogue's Run isn't the most traveled road. Most people in the area use Route 88, which leads directly to Ogilvy Park. So Pogue's Run is more of like a back way to get there. Mount St. Joseph isn't exactly in plain sight. And I think anyone on the grounds would have to be familiar with that area. Maybe this person grew up there. And there's the theory that this person was passing through or maybe a vagrant. But I think someone at the mother house would have noticed someone like this. It's just not an area that you can just wander onto. And this was well before Ogilvy became the popular resort that it is today. So I don't see any reason for anyone to be there that wasn't from the area. What's even more interesting is that this wasn't the only unsolved crime of this type that occurred. From November 1976 to May of 1977, there were a string of rapes and strangulations that occurred in the area of Washington County, PA. And that's less than 25 miles for where Robin was raped and murdered. The crimes were so sensational in the press that the perpetrator was dubbed the Washington Strangler. It may seem confusing to those who aren't from the area when I jump between states. If you look at a map, Wheeling is the part of West Virginia that is at the very tip of the panhandle, and it's between the states of Ohio and Pennsylvania. So within just a matter of minutes, you could go one way and cross a bridge and be in Ohio, or you could go another way and be in Pennsylvania. And that's how close all three states are at the tip of the panhandle. So Washington County is very close by. This Washington Strangler terrorized residents in the late 70s. Since then, many have speculated on who the perpetrator was or whether or not all these crimes were actually connected. Ted Bundy was even listed as a suspect. Since DNA has come onto the scene, two of the crimes have been connected but that leaves the other still a mystery. The thought that there are three unaccounted for murders out there is just a chilling thought in itself. On November 24, 1976, 21-year-old Susan Rush disappeared after leaving her job at the Washington Mall 
which was in South Strabane. She had plans to meet up with her family at church later that evening, but she never made it. The next day around 9 a.m., her brother spotted her car parked on North Avenue, just less than a mile from the mall. And when the trunk was popped, her body was found inside. She was wearing pants and a turtleneck that was inside out. And according to her autopsy, she had either been strangled with a piece of leather or string. There were signs that she'd had sex, but it wasn't clear if it was consensual or not. The only marks on her body were from the strangulation. On February 13, 1977, another girl disappeared. This was 16-year-old Mary Irene Jensie of North Charleroi. And she was last seen at home where she left to meet up with some friends. And she never made it to her destination. Somewhere along the way, she had been attacked. Her body was found six days later in a wooded area on a dirt road. She had been brutally beaten and raped. The cause of her death was from multiple skull fractures and brain injury. 17-year-old Deb on a hillside near an abandoned strip mine in Robin, roughly three miles from her home. She disappeared on St. Patrick's Day, March 17, 1977, while waiting to catch the bus to school in Imperial. She was last seen at her home around 7.45 a.m., While her brother normally walked with her to the bus stop, this day he didn't, and she never made it on us. Deborah had been raped and then strangled with the leg of her blue jeans that she'd been wearing. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Two months later came the death of Brenda Lee Ritter of North Strabane. The 18-year-old was last seen at her boyfriend's house on May 18th around 10 p.m., Her boyfriend and his mom watched her drive away. She'd been warned by them and her family to keep her car doors locked after the rash of attacks in the vicinity. Her abandoned car was found the next day, and her body was found about three-quarters of a mile from her car 
in an isolated area of South Strabane. Like the others, she had been raped. She was found nude with her underwear twisted around her neck with a stick, essentially garroting her. So there's a theory that someone was posing as a policeman to gain the girl's trust. And that might explain why Brenda, who'd been warned to keep her doors locked, had been able to be victimized. A few days after her body was found, County Sheriff Hannah Pye Johns shot himself. And it led many to think that he was the one that did the crime. But his relatives insist that he was upset over losing the bid for the nomination of sheriff and not anything to do with Brenda's death. He was investigated and later cleared by police. And there is one other death which many claim are connected. That was of 30-year-old Barbara Jean Lewis. Her partially clad body was found in a trash container in the Churchill area near Penn Hills in Pennsylvania. And this was just about a mile from her home. She was last seen that morning by her sister, as she went to the bus stop, which was less than a five-minute walk. Her body was found outside the Brackenridge Civil Association by a cleaning lady, and her body was still warm to the touch. Like Sister Robin, she'd been strangled by hand, and not by an item of clothing like some of the other women. And although she didn't seem to have been sexually assaulted, her underwear was on inside out and her bra was torn. Paper gauze had been stuffed into her mouth and nostrils after she'd been killed. Finally, some answers came in 2000. There was a DNA match in the murder of Deborah Capiola, and that was to David Robert Kennedy. He'd been a suspect in the murder for years, and now police were finally able to connect him to this crime. They tested a sperm sample taken at the crime scene against his, finding a match. Kennedy's car had been seen speeding away near the crime scene the day of the murder. State Trooper Rebecca Loving thinks Kennedy stalked the young woman. And when her brother didn't accompany her that day to the bus stop, he decided to act on his urges. At that time, he was working as a civil mechanic at the Air Force Reserve Base in Moon, Allegheny County. And this creep even had the nerve to tell Loving that he'd been stalking her after she started investigating him in 2000. He casually told her the places she'd been in the past days and even what she wore. Obviously, he was trying to get into her head. Robert Ressler of the FBI Behavioral Science Unit and more recently of Mindhunter fame even weighed in on the situation. He said the killing of Ng in 2000 could signal that Kennedy wanted to, quote, take his fantasies a step further. He said it could indicate multiple crimes. And although many cite the differences in the strangulations as proof they're not all connected, Ressler disagrees. He said it's a common misconception that serial killers follow the same rituals. These people are experimenters, he said, and they try many different So this might explain why some were killed with items of their clothing while some were killed with bare hands. Kennedy was eventually convicted and sentenced to life in prison. At the time of the murder, the death penalty was not in use. Loving emphatically thinks that the murder of Mary Irene Jensie is not connected to Kennedy, though. For that case, she says there is another strong suspect. 
Kennedy's DNA has officially eliminated him as a suspect in this case and that of Susan Rush. She has a theory that the killer might have done the old Ted Bundy and pretended to have an injury or a flat tire. That way he could catch the victim off guard, and that would account for the lack of bruising on any of the victims. Ressler thinks that if it is a serial killer, then it's one who is very organized. Ressler is the one who came up with the serial killer theories. An organized killer stalks and plans his attack, while the other classification usually applies to someone with a mental illness, leaving behind sloppy work and lots of evidence. The problem with the remaining unsolved crimes is where they occurred. If you remember, I explained how close West Virginia, Ohio, and Pennsylvania all are at the edge of the panhandle. The connecting these states are interstates that are heavily traveled. And this could be one of those crazy circumstances where there are several killers involved. Some might be connected. And the greatest fear is that none of them are, and we're looking at individual killers for each of them. If I had to point to the type of person to be a suspect, I'd say maybe we'd be looking at a truck driver. When you drive from Wheeling to Pittsburgh, you drive through the countryside and your constant companions on the road are tractor trailers. I'd venture to say that you'd see more trucks than cars on the road. I remember when I was little, the interstate was a bit different. At that time, most people used Interstate 70 and Interstate 376 didn't go through until years later. Interstate 70 goes right by the roads that lead to Ogilvy Park. You take that interstate in the opposite direction, and it would lead you to Washington County. But this is just my theory. Maybe this person had connections in both areas. So now let me throw a monkey wrench into this whole thing. I had finished up with all my research at this point. I'd had the podcast written, and it was ready to record. When I coincidentally clinked on an article that talked about a man who is highly suspected of the killings. And the rest of this blew my mind. A woman named Mary Ann Marker in Somerset, Pennsylvania, called the state police to say that she'd been shot. At that time, she was a 42-year-old stay-at-home mom who was married to a state trooper. It was around 8.40 in the morning when she heard the doorbell ring. So as a precaution, she looked out the window to see who was outside. There was a man on her porch. She said, He was prancing around out there. He was nervous. He started knocking on the door really loudly. I came out and opened the inside door about halfway. The man asked her for directions to Myersdale, which I assume is a town nearby. Apparently, they have a maple festival, and it wasn't unusual for people to stop and ask for directions. While she was giving him the directions, he opened his jacket. He pulled a gun from his belt. Marianne reacted quickly, trying to close the door, but before she got it shut, he shot her in the face. She said she felt the fire come out of the gun. She felt hot pain, and she fell to her knees. Somehow, she got the door shut and locked. She knew she had to phone the state police, and luckily, since her husband worked there, she knew the number by heart. How this woman had the sense of mind, I don't know. She kept her cool, and she gave this very detailed description of her attacker. He had salt and pepper gray hair, a charcoal and white tweed sport jacket, a white shirt, charcoal pants, charcoal tie, charcoal socks, and black shoes. He was driving a mid-sized car, and with that, she spread a blanket on her new sofa, 
so as not to get blood on it and waited for help. I'm incredibly impressed with this woman. I mean, I would have frozen in terror. She described this guy to a T and she kept her cool. Because of her, the state police were able to locate his rental car and they pulled him over. But before they could make an arrest, he shot himself with a 357 handgun. In his car, they found a kit containing two guns, duct tape, and rope. The man was 53-year-old real estate and insurance salesman Gary A. Robbins of Murraysville. He was divorced and recently served time for failing to pay his alimony and his child support. After stealing from his customers, he lost his real estate license. And to top it all off, he was over $200,000 in debt and he said losing his eyesight from diabetes. And apparently, he was suspected in the following crimes. In 1987, 36-year-old Christine Campbell of Chester, West Virginia, was found dead in a ditch. She had been bound and shot multiple times. In 1988, he was identified as the person who dumped a Butler County woman over an embankment in 1982 after he sexually assaulted, burned, and beat her. And it doesn't stop there either. He's suspected of the 1983 killing of Nancy Pucci of Maryland, the 1984 murder of Sue Klassen of Reed City, Michigan, and the killing spree that I talked about earlier in Washington County. And there's one more unsolved crime that he's very well linked to, and that is that of Carol Jersick. It was July 1979, and Carol Jersick had just picked up some groceries while out jogging. And even though she was only 10 houses away, she never made it home. She had been jogging with her friend and roommate, Michael, until they got close to her apartment that they shared with four other friends in Squirrel Hill. Carol wanted to stop at the Giant Eagle grocery store, while Michael continued jogging home. He thought he would just see her again in a few minutes. Neighbors walking their dog found the groceries on the ground that was hers around 10.30 p.m. Michael and the other roommates then reported her missing. Police searched the street where they all lived, where she was last seen, as well as nearby Shenley Park. She was nowhere to be found. Six days later, firefighter Dave McSwiggan was walking his dog in Frick Park. And there he discovered the partially decomposed body of Carol between two logs and covered by brush. She was examined by famed forensic pathologist Cyril Wecht, who at that time was Allegheny County's coroner. Carol had been stabbed once in the chest, and that stab penetrated her heart. And it was unsure if she'd been sexually assaulted. Her jogging pants were removed, and they couldn't be found. And she was found lying face down. A few hours before her body was discovered, a woman had phoned in an anonymous tip to police saying that they would find a woman's body in the area where the firefighter discovered it. It's still a mystery as to who this woman was or how she knew about Carol's body. Police later discovered that Robbins had rented a car in Squirrel Hill. His own car was found near the block where Carol disappeared. It was discovered he'd once lived on Timberline Court in the Squirrel Hill area. So if Gary guilty of all these crimes, could he have also been the one who raped and murdered sister? I mean, it's not out of the realm of possibility. 
Like I said, there's that interstate that runs from Washington County, Pennsylvania into West Virginia. And Interstate 79 goes from the Pittsburgh area through Washington, where you can then take Interstate 70 directly into West Virginia. And that's the interstate that runs directly by the exit for Pogues Run Road that leads to Mount St. Joseph. And if this man real estate and life insurance, he would have been on the road a lot. Or maybe this was earlier when he was younger. He very well could be the culprit. I mean, who knows? Hopefully at some point, DNA will solve these questions. It's been 40 years since Sister Robin's murder and rape. After her death, a mass was held for her. Over 200 people came. She was later buried at St. Calvary Cemetery. Her fellow sisters at Mount St. Joseph prayed for her on the bench where she was attacked. I watched this show called Sensing Murder where two psychics went to Mount St. Joseph with the new investigating officers to see if they could get any ideas about the murder. I don't know how much faith I put into things like that, but I do remember the one psychic saying she felt a sense of peace at the bench, like all the praying that was done had washed away the bad energy. I hope that's the case. I don't know how much stock I put into the idea of God either, but I hope Sister Robin is at peace. She was simply a young woman who wanted to devote her life to God and to help others. It somehow seems extra wrong that her life was taken in the manner that it was. This case has been with me since I was little, so I can imagine the impact it's had on others. So pardon the expression, but let's pray it gets solved. Thanks for listening this week. I really struggled with writing this episode. I think when something is this close to your hometown, you want to do it justice. So I struggled with wanting to make it perfect, but there's just no way to do that. So I just gave it my best shot. I'd rather get the story out there. And there wasn't a lot of information on any of the crimes, so I had to pull from the resources that I could, which was mainly old Pittsburgh Post-Gazette articles and a really good YouTube series called Mysterious West Virginia. And then having it all done and then reading that article about Gary Robbins just really threw me for a loop, too. So it was a hard one to put together. If you like Red Rum Blonde, please go to whatever form you listen to the podcast on and leave a good review. Leave a good review. If you want to leave a bad one, please don't bother. I say this because I got a bad review the other day. It kind of baffles me as why anyone would take the time out to put a bad review about a free podcast. Add that to complaining about anything on a free podcast like commercials or content. But I took it with a grain of salt and I'm actually trying to work on what this person criticized. But I'd like to reiterate I'm not a professional. I have absolutely no training in writing, researching, or speaking. So it's going to be rough at times. And I don't do a lot of editing on the show. In fact, most episodes are read straight through with zero edits. It's because my boyfriend is the editor and he works and he doesn't have a lot of time. So I'd rather read straight through and not have to make a bunch of edits. And that means I'll stumble over my words and make mistakes. And luckily, most of you that listen just roll with that. And seriously, I thank you a lot. I'll try to make it a little bit more professional and I'm getting better as I go along. So thanks for bearing with me. I'm human. I hate my voice and I'm not a good speaker, but I love doing the podcast. So it is what it is. So please skip the bad reviews. I understand constructive criticism, but 
Just remember, it's a free podcast, so please just enjoy it. Or don't enjoy it and don't listen. But thanks for tuning in. Catch you next week.